Before we begin, let us all take a moment to remind ourselves why we are here, what is our purpose, to remind ourselves how extremely fortunate we are to be in the presence of the Noble Triple Gem, to receive the teaching of the Blessed One, to be in the presence of the Sangha community, teachers who help us, guide us, instruct us on the path to our deliverance, to be in and amongst men and women who have committed their lives to the noble path and see no other purpose in life other than freeing themselves from suffering and helping others do so along the way. This is what we are here for. This is our purpose. Let us take a moment to seek homage and seek refuge in the Noble Triple Gem, reminding ourselves that it is because of the Awakened One, the Infinitely Compassionate One, he who is the epitome of wisdom and the fount of loving kindness. He is our teacher, our master, our guide. It is because of him we are all here today under one roof, united in our purpose. Let us bring our palms together in veneration of the supremely enlightened Gautama Buddha, and as we do so, renew our oath, our pledge, and our allegiance to the Dhamma and to freeing ourselves from suffering in the pursuit of the ultimate bliss of Nibbana. Namo tasse bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasse Namo tasse bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasse Namo tasse bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasse The very fact that Something can be late. Is evidence is it not? That nothing is time bound. If everything happened to time, then nothing could be late and neither could it be early. If things happen at the right time, if it is time that drives events, incidents and occurrences, then nothing could be late and nothing could be early. This arrived late because there is no time for it to be here. There is no right time and there is no wrong time. It arrived late because there were no causes for it to be here. If I said at the right time, again, I speak falsehood. But we are so intricately bound 
with time because that is how we've known to measure our existence. It is a construct that we have wound up in our own minds to describe how long we have been doing something. When you feel that it's the same person that's doing it, that has done it and will be doing it into the future, now you need a way to describe how long. So when you have to have a way to describe something in terms of time, now you can also go on to say whether something happens on time, before time, after the right time. When something is late or someone's late, how do you how do you perceive that? How do you perceive lateness? How do you perceive earliness? Why is it that you can say that something's late, but someone else will say no? It was bang on time. If something's black, it's black for everyone. Whereas if something's white, it's white for everyone. Even the color blinded. But when something's late, it's late for only those who believe it's late. And when something's early, it's early for those who perceive it as being early. And when something's on time, again, the same thing goes. When you believe it's on time, it's on time. <clears throat> what does that tell you about time? What, is, what do you know about beauty? Where does it lie? Not in the eyes, in the mind, absolutely. It lies in the mind of the beholder. So what about time then? Time also lies in the mind of the beholder. That is why what is early for you can be late for me. But we don't feel that we can exist without time, can we? All the time, see? All the time you are looking at the clock, watching the time pass by. You want to have some free time, in your spare time, all the time, some of the time, never on time. Some people are always on time. See what a wonderful concept we have contrived in our own minds that help us to be sane. Now that's no excuse for this to not be on time next week. It has to be before I get here. I speak of the truth, the higher truth, in a different dimension to the one in which we normally operate. One is for convention. Convention is for convenience. So that we can coexist. So that we can live comfortably. But that is one. But the absolute truth is something completely different. 
you have to step beyond the conventional truths to realize the absolute truth. It is not bound by time. That is why the truth is timeless. Swakato Bhagavata Dhammo Sandittiko Akaliko. The Buddha describes the Dhamma as being timeless. Of course, there is one interpretation of that, and that is, it was true when he first preached it. It was true even before then. And it will always be true. Yes, I take that, granted. But he speaks of the Dhamma. What liberty do you have to think that when he says Dhamma, he only means the Dhamma that he preached. Dhamma is everything. Everything is Dhamma. This is Dhamma. Dhamma is what you bear. This you bear. What does the mind do if not bear? That's what the mind is for, to bear. You mind and you bear. Shall I tell you a little secret? What will you do with it? You'll bear it, won't you? Shall I tell you what happened to me yesterday? What will you do with it? You'll bear it. Shall I tell you what my plan is for tomorrow? If I tell you, what will you do with it? You'll bear it. Shall I show you something? See? What are you doing with it right now? You're bearing it. The mind bears this sight for the duration of its existence. As it passes away, along with it, the object that it perceived passes away. It doesn't bear it any longer until the next thought moment arises. Too heavy right at the beginning? Well, you should have kept the clock here on time. It's your fault. I hadn't planned on talking about any of these. You know, I tell you, right? We never come here with the script. Whatever the mind bears, the mind then perceives it through the lens of Dhamma. And then I just start speaking. You come here and do a dance on Saturday morning. I'll talk to you about your dance. You come here and sing a song. I'll talk to you about that. Because there's no set agenda for these sermons. Because Dhamma is not for that. The Dhamma is what you bear. So if this is what the I bore, in fact, the, the mind bore, then that is what we need to see through the Dhamma. That's it. This is why our practice of the Dhamma, ladies and gentlemen, is very practical. We don't isolate ourselves anywhere. You know, we are out there. We are here. Nibbana has to happen in the present moment. Nibbana is not a promise for tomorrow. Because tomorrow is not timeless. Tomorrow happens in the sequence of time. So I can't promise you a Nibbana tomorrow. If I did, I'm not, talk, I'm not speaking to you about Nibbana. 
Nibbana is what happens now. Nibbana is how you bear, how you perceive through insight what the mind bears. That is what Nibbana is. Do you understand what I'm trying to explain to you? Or is it just going over your head? Too early for this, for a Saturday morning sermon. Can we start with something a bit lighter? <laughs> no, I think, I think you're a very seasoned crowd, audience. You've been listening to these talks. This is not something I'd say on a Sunday morning. And if, the, if the clock arrived late, I'd say thank you. Better late than never. <laughs> and I'd carry on. Hmm? But with you people, I don't want to insult. I don't want to insult you by coming here and just brushing things off superficially and not helping you realize the truth in the everyday moments. Nibbana happens every moment. If it doesn't for you, then what you're trying to achieve is not Nibbana. This is why I'll emphasize again, Nibbana is not a promised land somewhere. It is not where you've come from, so you have to return to it. It is here and it is now. That is what people talk about, you know, awareness or mindfulness. If you are mindfully aware, insightfully about what the mind bears, that is Nibbana. But you have to be mindfully aware, not just being mindful. You have to be aware, insightfully. Because you can be ignorantly aware, or rather ignorantly mindful. So you could think that this was late. You could actually think that we were late. The clock was late. Now you are still mindful that it was late, but you are ignorantly mindful. Conventionally that is true, but that is not the higher truth. That is true for everyday existence. And we need to be able to see the world in those terms as well, but only for our existence. Only for convenience, only so that we can communicate. So it's not alright for this to arrive late. Is it? Is it alright for the bus to arrive late? Is it alright for you to miss your flight because you arrived at the airport late? No, it's not. If you promise to be here at 7 o'clock, you've got to be here at 7 o'clock. It's not alright to be here by five minutes past seven. I'm not making any reference to anything. I'm just saying. So that is a conventional reality. But in absolute terms, we need to understand that every time we perceive the world in terms of time, ladies and gentlemen, that is jati happening in your mind. You've got to see the elephant in the room. Don't miss it. Be mindfully aware, once again, that it is jati happening in your mind. It's not enough to just say, I've been here for an hour now. Where is Swami Nuhansi? 
then you've missed the whole point of Swami Nuhansi being there. Perhaps Swami Nuhansi was an hour late to teach you a lesson. If you look at life insightfully, everything is a teacher. The autumn leaves as they fall off the trees are teachers. Don't miss them. The bird that just chirped outside, that's a teacher. Don't miss it. Don't skip a beat. See? It's giving you lessons. Don't miss it. It's giving you something to bear and asking you, how did you bear me? Did you bear me insightfully or did you bear me ignorantly? It just gave you Nibbana. The question is whether you did Nibbana or you did Bana. But we can't help ourselves from seeing the world as a time-bound series of events. right? So you could say, you know, in the 1900s, such and such thing happened. A billion years ago, or even light years ago, the Big Bang happened. That's when everything started. Hmm? A billion years ago. And a billion years from now, the sun would engulf the earth and everything as we know it will perish. When will that happen? Not anytime soon, so let's not worry about it. See, when we put things on the scale of time, it helps us to make our minds up and be comfortable about it. What if I told you that you'd still be around then? You know, that is why people fear the future. Did you know that fossil fuels will be running out in 50 years' time? <gasps> what? We won't have air cons? What's your problem? Your problem is... Well, you know, it's, it's a bit like this, right? So those who have obviously no hope of being around in 50 years' time, you know who you are, <laughs> huh? they'll be like, fine, I won't be there. It's all right. But the young ones in the room, they'll be like, oh gosh, in 50 years' time, you know, that's going to be a problem. It's going to be a big problem. I better, I, better, I better do something about it. So they think they're going to be there. And you think you won't be there. <laughs> Who's right? <laughs> Some of you will think you'll be there to experience and witness this happening and you'll all be, uh, you'll be affected by it. And others think, oh, I won't be there, I'll be dead by then. Because you see the world through the lens of time. And you say, I'll be dead by then. So, I won't be there from there on. Even if you believed in reincarnation, you'd still say, that's somebody else, it's not me. It's somebody else. And so what's the problem? I've heard people say, what's the point, what's the problem in going to hell, Swami? And I say, it's not me anyway. Hmm? Heard people say that. 
So then what's the problem you're suffering right now then? Is a question I have to ask them in, in return. What's the problem with you suffering right now then? Because you would have said the same thing last time. Yeah, are you alright with suffering now? Because you said the same thing last time. In your previous birth, you said the same thing. It's alright, it's not me suffering, but you suffering right now, aren't you? Yes. Well, is that a problem to you? Yes. Well, the same problem applies next time. So will you be there to witness the world running out of fossil fuels or will you not? What do you think? Yes or no? Oh, am I asking the wrong question? Such questions were posed to the Buddha many a time in his, in his time. Many a time? In? In his time. When was his time? Two and a half thousand long years ago, when he roamed the surface of the earth. Hmm? When did the Buddha roam the surface of the earth? Two and a half thousand years ago. You've got to say it like that, with, you know, with that effect. Two and a half thousand years ago. Hmm? Or a long time ago in Bethlehem. There's, there's, a, there's a nice effect to it, isn't there? It's like you are relating a story. Hmm? Everybody likes a story. You, you enjoy listening to a story. You enjoy what, what, listening to what happened in the past. You enjoy listening to what might happen in the future. All because you experience that you are an identity on a timeline. You enjoy talking about your past. You know, when I was a kid... We didn't have the things that you had. You'll find yourselves telling your children. Children, your parents say that? Yeah, all the time, right? Yeah. You know, when I was your age, we didn't have the bus, we didn't have the car to take us to school. We had to walk to school. You're so privileged now. So privileges have come with time. So that gives children the hope that we'll just allow enough time to pass by and we'll have more privileges. So they look forward to privileges. In fact, they look forward to time. See, we are, we, are, we are trapped in this perception of time. That is why things are late for you. That is why things are early for you. And not just that, that's why things are on time for you. When something happens on time, how do you feel? If it's the time, so you know what. What is the meaning of something happening on time? It is when you expect it to happen. Let's say right on time. And say when you are late for something, right? When you know you are late for something, how does that make you feel? Hmm? Guilty. Hmm? Makes you feel guilty. So sometimes you know you creep into the room. Hiding, you know, lowering your head, hoping no one, no one catches you. Maybe there's a, it's a seminar hall, right? Someone's doing a, a talk, giving a talk, and you just creep into the room. Maybe it's a classroom, and the teacher goes, "Oh, good evening." 
Nice of you to turn up. And you go, yikes, she saw me. Oh, when you're late, do you walk in with your, you know, uh, chest forward and head held high up? I'm late. And that's the way I rock and roll. No, it's an embarrassment, isn't it? See what time has done for you? Or done to you, rather? It gives you embarrassment. Is that a positive feeling? No. It's not right for a mind to feel embarrassed. Minds aren't meant to feel embarrassed. We'll talk about that another day. But I'm talking about time specifically today. Or when you're on time, you feel really good about yourself. Maybe you're before time. Hmm? Then you feel really good about yourself. See, I've come on time before everybody else turned up. Hmm? That's the way I rock and roll. I'm always early. And they say, better three hours early than a minute late. So the long and short of all this is, ladies and gentlemen, I need you to ask yourself the question, do you still work to time? Is it time that drives your life? Is it that timepiece on your wall that determines, dictates to you rather, what you've got to be doing next? Then you'll ask me, but Swami what about you then? You'll ask me, don't you come for arms at half ten in the morning? And then don't you keep looking at the clock to see what time you have to stop taking your arms? Isn't that time-driven? Yes, of course it is. And if you have a doctor's appointment, can you just walk in whenever you like it, Swami Nuhansa? What are you talking about? Don't you have to be there on time? This sermon has to finish at a certain time. Don't you know that, Swami Nuhansa? Isn't that why you asked for the clock in the first place? Yes. This is all for convenience. We are talking about a convention. Let the convention be. Let's live by the conventions. Let's live by the convention. But let's not become the convention. You have become a convention. Are you a man or a woman? Well, last time I checked, you'll say. Hmm? Last time I checked, I was a man. Last time I checked, I was a woman. Last time I checked, I was a child or an adult. Hmm? You'll say. Last time I checked, I was young. Last time I checked, I was old. My mother said I was a girl, so I must be one. My father said I was a boy. The blessing of the family, so I must be one. Yes, these are all conventions. You're looking at the body. Don't say your body. Don't say my body. It's just a body. You look at a body and go, this is the body of a man, this is the body of a woman. What you can't help doing is perceiving that you are speaking of yourself. That's, how, that's why you feel you are a man and you are a woman. What part of you is actually manly? What part of you is womanly? Again, you have been entrapped in convention. I'm trying to get you to transcend that. Step outside of that. 
live in convention but don't become the convention. The problem is you don't just live by convention, you have become the convention. You have to become the absolute. For that you have to start to see the world in absolute terms. When the Buddha was asked, what are the absolute truths, what did he say? Man, woman and child? He said, Chitta, Chaitasika, Rupa and Nibbana. These are the four absolute things. The four absolute entities. He never talked about men, he never talked about women. No birds or no bees. He didn't talk about flora and fauna. He didn't talk about any of those things. He said, Chitta, Chaitasika, Rupa and Nibbana. These are the absolute things. But you recognize that you are a man, you recognize that you are a woman. You recognize that in this birth I've always been a woman. Or in this birth I've always been a man. Hopefully in my next birth I can become someone else, if that is what your ambition or dream is. Maybe in the next birth I can become a Deva. Perhaps a Brahma. Hmm? See? Perhaps in this birth I can become an Arahant. Keep thinking like that and you'll never become one. You can't become an Arahant. That's because you are an Arahant. No? You know how we say, right? By the power of these maids, may this land be blessed by a hundred thousand Arahants. Hmm? I can do that right now. Well, there aren't a hundred thousand here, but you are all arahants. I've just produced, what, say, fifty, sixty arahants. You agree or not? How is an arahant made? That's the thing. You don't make an arahant. It's not something you cook up in a lab. You don't have to make an arahant. An arahant is what is there. When the mind is born, the mind is born as an arahant. It's what you do then that destroys that peace. That is why Nibbana is not something that you can go and find out there. It's with you. Keep going on about this over and over. It's, it's with you. You are an arahant to begin with. It's like rust on an iron. When you see rust on an iron, and if you want an iron, where do you go to get it? Hmm? Where do you go to get an iron? You're holding in your hand a rusted iron, and it's completely covered in rust. Okay? Now if you want the iron, what do you do? Exactly. You scrape the rust off, and there's the iron. You don't need to go anywhere to get the iron. It's there. You're holding it. The thing is, you're holding something more than the iron. That's all. But isn't the iron there? It's there. In the same way, ladies and gentlemen, I need you to understand that you are all arahants. But you become convention in your mind. You allow yourself to become convention. You embrace convention. So do we completely discard convention? Once again, let's be clear. Let's be absolutely clear about this. I don't want you to walk out of here like zombies. 
thinking, oh, it's, you know, I'm just a mind. <laughs> yeah, you are. But then don't go bumping into rubber trees. I mean, I'm just a mind, so I can't bump into things, right? So I just keep walking. Be careful, there's a pond out there. You might fall into that. You go, I can't fall into things because I'm just a mind. I can't bump into things because I'm just a mind, right? Then you don't need to eat. You don't need to sleep. You don't need to breathe. You don't need to do any of those things. <laughs> Convention is for convenience and we have to live in those conventions. But don't become the convention. Live the convention, but recognize. It's like, you know, say you are a spy. Hmm? If you are a spy, how would you behave? Let's say you are spying for a king in a foreign kingdom. What would you, how would you behave when you are in the foreign kingdom? You would behave like one of them, wouldn't you? But what would you also know? That you are not one of them. You haven't become them, have you? You are just with them, but you haven't become them. Your loyalty is not to the new king, your loyalty is to your king. But when the, when the other king, when the, when the enemy king walks in, don't you stand hmm? and pay your respect? Because what would happen if you didn't? You'd have to answer with your head. Yeah? So you'd have to stand. You'd have to pay your respect. You'd have to greet the king. And you'd have to say, Your Majesty, Sire. But your loyalty is not to that king. Your loyalty is to your king. Now, in much the same way, when you live life, live by convention. When we walk out, when we go out, when we have to leave the monastery, we live by convention. Now, you know at the monastery, we, we have our food in an arms bowl. But there will be occasions where sometimes they offer us food on a plate. And that's perfectly fine. If at that point I go, no, I'm a monk. I'm a monk who lives in a monastery. I can only have my food in my arms bowl. Take that away. Bring it in an arms bowl. By the time they find an arms bowl, I'd be dead. Imagine I got stuck in the desert. Hmm? If I got stuck in the desert, and I, no one took my arms bowl, hmm? or the cargo went missing, now all I've got is a plate. They, or they serve it to me on a, on a leaf. Now if I can't eat that on a leaf, or on a bark of wood, right? What would happen? I wouldn't live another day to become who I really want to become. So that would be foolish. In the Buddha's rule of code of conduct, he sets down precisely some of the things that we have to do when we are out and about. How we walk, how we talk, hmm? how we observe, how we look. Look at other things, look at other people. All of these things, how we sit, how we stand. All of these things, the Buddha has laid down in very clearly. This is what we call the code of conduct. Because there are conventions that we have to comply with. So the Buddha who 
expounded the absolute truths he himself teaches us. You got to live by convention. I say this because there have been occasions where some people have been a bit too silly and they, they begin to start living by, actually start becoming convention. I've had people, you, you wouldn't believe me. Honestly, gentlemen, I've had people who've come to me and said, now Swami Nasa, I don't see the things I used to see. I don't see walls. I don't see trees. I don't see, I don't see my wife. I think I have attained Nibbana. I go, oh God. Where did it all go wrong, sir? This has happened. I'm not making this up. It's happened. So please don't become one of them. You are an Arahant, so your, your, your task is not to become an Arahant. Your task is to allow that Arahant to surface. It is oppressed. It is suppressed. Don't allow... You, you have the Arahant within you which is suppressed. You just need that Arahant to rise up. That's all. It's like the rust that covers the iron. Remove the rust, wash it away, brush it away, and you have the iron in the same way. It, are, it is the defilements that suppresses the Arahant within you. And why is that? It's because you have become convention. So now do you understand what I mean by time and becoming timeless? So we still talk about time, but the reason you say that something is early or something is late is because in your mind you have constructed this conception of time. Isn't that why when you say, see, look at a clock, right, and you have your watch on you, now, the, the time on the clock there is six minutes past eight. Hmm? Now, look at, if, you, if you've got a watch on you, have a look at the time. If, you have, if you're wearing a watch. If it's, if it's anything other than six minutes past eight, you've got a problem. You'll either say, Swaminas, I think we have to adjust that. It's the wrong time. You'll either say that clock is too early or that clock is running behind. You feel that, don't you? That unsettledness. You feel that queasiness. You feel that something's not right. Because in your world, time has to make sense. Because you have engulfed yourself in time. If you understand this, folks, you know, I'm not talking about time just for the sake of talking about time. Within this concept, I'm trying to show you that all of this is because of a bigger problem. Jati is what's giving you this sense of time. It's Jati. Or Dukkha is what's giving you a sense of time. These are all the effects of Jati. That is what I need you to understand. Because when Jati happens, things seem connected. See, I'm going to show you something and I need you to try and see how things are connected. Now, I take this pen, I take off the cap, I turn to the board, I write something, I take the pen back again, 
put the lid back on and put the pen in the holder. What happened? <coughs> As you perceived it, try and relate what happened. Now let me try and relate it to you and you see how far you are off from that. Okay? Swamin Mahanse took a pen out of the pen holder, he, re- he took the cap off, he drew something on the board, put the cap back on and put the pen back in the holder. Isn't that what happened? That's, why, that's how you perceive it. So now if I asked you, let's put those events on the board. Okay? So, Swamin Mahanse is responsible for all of this. And the misery that we are going through right now, trying to understand all this stuff. Right? So he took the pen out of the holder. Pen out of the holder. Then what did he do? Take the cap off. Then what did he do? Yes, he turned towards the board. Then what did he do? He drew... He drew something. And then what did he do? He turned back round. Then put the cap back on. And then put the pen back in the holder. Yeah? So how many steps? One, two, three, four, five, six, and seven. In which order? In that order. Are you able to look at this event in this order? What if I told you Here's what happened. He turned towards the board. Then he took the cap off. And then he drew something on the board. After that, he took the pen out of the holder. What he did then soon after that was turned around. Then he put the pen back in the holder and he put the cap back on. If I told you that's what happened, how does that make you feel? It's all wrong, yes. Of course it's all wrong. Uh, No, don't say that, don't say that. It's all wrong. That cannot be what happened. It's all jumbled up. That's not how it happened. It happened the way you numbered it previously. That's how it happened, not this. Do you know why you feel looking at this so unsettling and so uneasy? It's because you are time bound. In your mind, events take place on a timeline. So you can't look at events as discrete events. They have to make sense on a timeline. That's why if I said, let me tell you a story. Once upon a time... Swami Nuhansi drew something on the board. And then he turned towards the board. And you know what he did then? He took the cap off. And soon after, 
he took the pen out of the holder. You'd be like, that's not a story, Swaminan said. That makes no sense. How can that be a story? It makes no sense. Where's the sequence? See, you can't look at things as discrete, isolated events. They all have to make sense one after the other, after the other, after the other. And that is because you are time bound. The world has to make sense as you look at it through the lens of time, doesn't it? So now you will say, this is out of sequence. Now, again, conventionally, you need this sequence. I'm not talking about convention now, so please step out of convention. While we are here under this roof, we don't talk convention. Well, we do sometimes. You know, and I say, be a nice person, and help other people, be gentle, be kind. Hmm? That is convention. Whereas in absolute terms, there is no such thing. All there is is energy and the flow of energy. But to attain to that, that insight, to attain to that wisdom, you need to be a conventionally good person. Conventionally you have to be a good person. In other words, you can't go from being a bad person to a great person. There's one jump before that. What is that? A good person. A good person is a good person conventionally. In the conventional world, in the world that we see around us, we have to be a good person. We have to start thinking about others and not just thinking about ourselves before we can entirely and completely lose the sense of self. You want me to say that again? You've got to start thinking about others more so than you start thinking about yourself before you can completely free yourself from the sense of self. If all you do is focus on yourself and what's good for you, what's right for you, what's wrong for you, your likes and dislikes, your preferences, right? and you don't care about other people, no matter what happens to somebody else, as long as I have it the way I want it, I'm happy, you can never lose the sense of self. How can you when you're so focused on a self? See, this is why in Buddhist philosophy, in this practice of Buddhism, we, we, we spend a lot of time talking about what we call Sudhugati. Being a white man, not that kind of white man. Not white in complexion, white in mind. Pure, good. Goodness have to precede greatness. That is why you have to have good after bad, and then after that you come to greatness. Right? So this is why we have Dakineyo, where you offer arms, where you give, this is an opportunity for you to, to engage in charity. That is why when you are here you look after each other. That is why when you are here you offer your seat to somebody else. What difference does it make? See, if, if you don't understand that part of it, then and, and you jump directly from bad to great, or at least if you try to make that jump, you'll start to ask questions like, well, what's the point of anything? If nothing exists, if all there is is just a perception, what's the point of doing anything? Why do I, why do I respect my parents? Why do I look after them? What's, what's so bad about killing? 
you'll even ask, you'll even go that far. What's so wrong with stealing? After all, if nothing belongs to anybody, then what's so wrong with stealing? See, isn't that a fundamentally wrong question to ask? If nothing belongs to anybody, what's the point? Of, what's, what's so wrong with stealing? <laughs> what is stealing? Taking something that belongs to somebody else without their permission, right? So someone asks the question, if nothing belongs to anybody, what's so wrong with stealing? Let me steal. They base their se- themselves in the understanding that there is such a thing as things that belong to people, and then they say, what's the point? What's so wrong with stealing if nothing belongs to anybody? You can't say, <laughs> you know, you can't say those two things in the same sentence. They are mutually exclusive. You can't say something belongs to somebody, so... What's the problem with me taking it if nothing belongs to anybody? Make sense? So, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm sharing this with you because I need you. I want to make sure that those who come here to our monastery and listen to these talks, right, you take the right path. It's very easy to sway from this path and fall into various traps because there are people who will tell you otherwise. There are people who will tell you, there's no such thing as good and bad. Just live your life as you like. Just live your life by animalistic instincts. They might tell you that. Don't fall. Don't fall for those into those traps. I wouldn't take that class if I were you. Then you fall into the the mitya ditti, wrong views, the ten wrong views. In the Buddha's words. If you are someone who is steadfast in the ten wrong views, then there is absolutely no hope for you. Goodness has to precede greatness. Never forget that. So, let's come back to convention again. Conventionally, this sequence that I have numbered here is completely and utterly out of place. This numbering does not work. But, see if you can just look at events as discrete events. which is how they really are. Just look at this and look at nothing else. Look at what, I, what is above the line and ignore all of this. Pen out of the holder. That's fine, is it? Isn't it? Pen out of the holder, that's fine. Yeah. Okay. Now, just focus on the one that I'm drawing the line under, Okay. Turn towards the board. That's fine, isn't it? As an as an event, a discrete event, that's fine. Turn towards the board. What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. Then I say, let's take another one. Take cap off. As a discrete event, what's wrong with that? Nothing wrong with that. When does it become a problem? When you try to slot it in its rightful place. In other words, when you try to fit these these things on the timeline, now they have to have a particular order in which they they have to happen. So much so, that if they don't come in the right sequence, you feel that something's wrong. I agree, you can't write before you take the cap off. I'm not talking about that. Physically, the cap has to come off, and then only can you write. Agreed. I'm not talking about that. What I'm saying is, if I were to relate a story to you as discrete events, you have a problem with that because you'll tell me, but that's, it can't be like that. It has to come in a certain sequence. 
And that is because you look at the world through the lens of time. Out of knowledge you can know that this is not the right sequence. But you also feel a sense that it's not right. This is wrong. Because in your story, it's all jumbled up. That makes you feel very uncomfortable. I'm talking about that feeling. When you perceive the world as events that happen on a timeline or a storyline. So now you have things that happen on time, things that happen before, things that happen after. See, if this had to happen, taking the cap off, if that had to happen exactly at 4 p.m., right? If that had to happen at 4 p.m., what if this happened at 4 or 5? Now, of course, this can't happen at 4 p.m. Yeah, if this happened at 4 or 5, then this can't happen at 4 p.m., so this will have to happen at at least maybe a minute past that. So now you'll say, well, you see, we are late. I wanted to do this at 4, but now I've got to do it at, four, at 6 minutes past 4. Why? Because you were 5 minutes late. Or you were 4 minutes late. This is simply a symptom of a much bigger problem. I'm not here to give you a lecture on time and that the world is timeless. I'm here to show you that you can't bear this on its own. You have a problem with that. This is a Dhamma. This, ladies and gentlemen, is a Dhamma. The Dhamma is not just the Dhamma you find in the Tripitaka. Dhamma is what you bear. This is a Sankar. It is a Rupa. It is a Vedana. It is a Sanya. It is a Sankar. And it is a Vinyan. See, it's a complete package. What's wrong with this? And a unit, a mind unit, can in fact do this. Imagine if you only needed one Chitta to perform this action. Right? If one chitta could perform this action, now in that one chitta you will find Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara and Vinyana, all five of them. Because you need all five to make up a chitta, don't you? So this is a self-sufficient package that can exist. What, in time? No, it can exist. Because there are causes, it can exist. I need you to go... Mentally go outside the bound of bounds of time and start to see the world as causes and effects. That is all there is, cause and effect. This can happen because there are causes, not because it, ha- it happened after this. And not because it is six minutes past four. That's not why it happened. So this clock didn't arrive three minutes later than its due time. It arrived when the causes were there. That's why it wasn't there when the causes weren't there. Not because it was late. So what is late then? When causes don't line up the way we want it. Right? And, and, and you want to say how that worked in relation to something else. When you want to link two events. 
When you want to link two events, now you need a measure, don't you? It's like, if you wanted these two things to always be together, what might you need? Hmm? When you pull on this, this has to come along with it. What might, might, what might you need? Maybe a bit of string to tie them together? Maybe a rubber band that can go, an elastic band to go around this? Yeah? So to keep it together, that is bana. That is your bana. Bana is like the yoke that keep the, keep the two oxen together. That's the bana. If you can see things as discrete events, that is nibbana. But in your world, when events happen, if they happen to hap- they have to happen in sequence, not conventionally, but I'm talking about in absolute terms. If events have to happen in sequence, and if this has to come after this, in other words, when you pull on this, this has to come along with it. Now, these two events are tied together. Nothing ties them together except your perception of that. So now, for that to happen, you put this on a timeline. Then, when you pull this, and this doesn't come with it, you say, this is late. If when you pull on this, this also comes along with it, you say, ah, they're, they're on time. If this moves before you pull on this, you say, this is early. See? You're talking about one event in relation to another. Who gave you the authority or the liberty to relate two events to one another? When they're all discrete events, when they're all discrete events, what gives you the authority, the, the, the liberty to link two events together? You know, when this chitta does this, okay, the chitta that does this hasn't even arrived yet. Hasn't been born yet. And the chitta that does this, or that did this, is no longer there. So they have no connection to each other. Anything you do, you do in a chitta. In a thought moment. Anything you... Because what are you right now? Again you say, I'm a man. (laughs) I'm a human being. Hmm? I'm a human being. I'm a man. Conventionally, yes. But in absolute terms, it would be wrong for me to even ask you the question, who are you? Because you are not a who. Then, you're a, you're a what? What are you? What are you? Mind, a mind and matter. Hmm? Mind and matter. So what is the mind then? Let's leave matter to a side for a second. What is the mind then? A mind is an aggregation of rupa, and an instance of rupa, an instance of vedana, instance of sanya, sankara and vijnana. Just, you know, in a, just an instance, that's it. In one instance, that's a mind moment. That's all you are. But you don't feel that way. You feel, in fact, that you walked into this room an hour ago, and you'll be here for the foreseeable future, right? And then you'll have the, the uh, sermon in the evening, you have to go home later on today, and you have all these things to do. This is because discrete events, you'd wrap up, in this wrapper of time because you feel that you are connected to the future 
you feel that you are connected to your past. Actually what happened were discrete events. But you can't leave it at discrete events. They have to have a connection to each other. That connection is your bana. Hmm? That connection is your bana. You've seen bulls plowing fields, haven't you? So when they plow fields, what is that thing that connects the two of them together? That is the bana. Or a yoke. When you sever that, if you take that out, now the bulls go in whichever direction, or the oxes go in whichever direction they want to. Now they don't go together. Now they are no longer a pair. They can go whichever direction they want. In the same way, if you can look at events as discrete events without a connection to each other. See, the benefit of being able to do all this, ladies and gentlemen, is that you can be okay with anything. I mean, that's the whole point of this, of me trying to explain this to you and I'm, I'm trying to convince you something so that you can be okay with anything. The reason you can't be okay with anything is because you have always something in relation to something else. That comparison always happens in your mind. You have a picture of what is right. That's why when things fit that picture, you go, excellent. When things don't fit that picture, you go, that's terrible. This is when you feel happy and this is when you feel sad. Both happiness and sadness are products of you comparing two things together. In other words, bana. When two things have a relation to one another, that is when you can either say that they are good or that they are bad. Raga and Dvesha. Desire and aversion are both the products of moha or delusion. See, you can only either hit someone or pat someone if you can catch them. Yeah? I said, go hit that guy. What must you do first? Catch him. I said, go pat that child. What must you do first? Catch it. What if you put your arm out and you couldn't catch it? Hmm? Like a Buddha. Imagine it was a spirit. Okay? A spirit. You, you can't catch a spirit. Now don't ask me, are there spirits? That's, that's not the point here. Okay? That's not the point. I'm just trying to explain something. Okay? So you put your arm out and you can't catch it. Let's say Casper. Hmm? You can't catch Casper. So, when you, because you can't catch Casper, you can't hit Casper, you can't pat Casper. Because Casper is just a ghost. Yeah? So this is what the Buddha says. Hetum paticca sambhuta. Hetum paticca sambhuta. Hetu bhanga niruchati. It's like a ghost. That's why we say it's a manifestation, not an object. You think you can hold this pen in your hand and you think I'm doing it right now, but I'm not. Uh, is this too much for you? Hmm? And this is what I practice. Well, I'm, I'm trying to explain it to you using everyday exp experiences and objects and examples. 
Hmm? Is it too much? If not, I can tell you a story. <laughs> you see, the thing is this, right? Whether you are a monk or a lay person, if you understand this, you'll be free. If you don't, you'll suffer. Because you'll always look to catch this. Either to pat it or to hit it. That's why you have Raga and you have Dvesha. <coughs> That's why you can't stop loving and hating. <coughs> That's why you feel that you are, you are attached to things. <coughs> Excuse me. You like things and you dislike things because you see things. That's why. <laughs> you are friends and you are enemies because you see people. But there are no people to see. Again, I mean in absolute terms. There are no pens to hold in your hand. There is no friend to catch and hit. No, there is, no is there a friend to hold and pat. These are all creations of your own perception. So you can't escape from desire and aversion for as long as you have delusion. Delusion is purely based in ignorance. That is why I am trying to share this knowledge with you, so that you are free from your delusion. And you begin to see the light. Some of these things I haven't even shared with the Swami Nances yet. That's why I'm wondering whether this is a bit too much. So as we practice, the Dhamma starts to flow. And some of these I've not heard before. So thank you for coming here today. I never thought I'd explain time in those terms. Thanks to the whoever made sure that the clock was not here on time. I mean, this is a this is like a parahara. This is like a this is a display. I don't know what I'm going to be seeing today. Now, just like you, you don't know what Swaminath is going to talk about today, right? Neither do I. I just come here and and bear, just as you do. You bear sights, I bear sights. You bear sounds, I bear sounds. You bear smells, I bear smells. You bear sensation, and so do I. Touch, and so do I. If there is a difference between you and I, the only difference is I bear insightfully. You might bear ignorantly. To whatever degree of insight you have, you can bear it in the, in, in, to that extent. I, I don't say I, f- I bear everything fully insightfully. My practice is that. So that eventually I can bear the whole world completely insightfully through wisdom and wisdom alone. If you can't see this pen, folks, you can't be against it and you can't be with it. You have to see the pen first. If you see the pen, that's a problem. That's why you love your child, because you see a child there. That's why you don't like or you you dislike the child that hit your child, because you see a child that hit your child. What there is, is simply an aggregation of Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara and Vinyana. Conventionally, yes, there is a child, but that is only for convenience. So that there is a form that you can fill when asked, who is this child's parents? My child. You can't say, that's just Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, Vinyana. They don't take that as an answer. <coughs> no, because imagine, right? You know, There is a few of us who understand the world in absolute terms, and there is the vast majority who don't. Hmm? They are trapped in the 
ocean of ignorance that is jati. Hmm? They they live and breathe in jati. So imagine if they and us we talk try to talk the same language. They can never see the world as we do. So it le- it is down to us to look at the world as they do. You see the five fingers on my hand. Hmm? Can you ask the thumb to reach the middle finger? Thumb here. Go reach the middle finger without the middle finger coming down to you. Can it? No, because every time it moves up, what happens to the middle finger? I'm actually not raising my hand up. I'm only just lifting my middle finger up. Sorry, my, my thumb up. What else is happening? The other fingers keep moving up. So there's only one way in which these two fingers can come into contact. This finger has to come and reach down this finger. Because it knows where he was before. That's why. This guy knows that boy, before I became, uh, before I got here, I was down here. He was down here. And then I got here. And then I got here. And then I got here. And now I'm here. And there are others still coming along on this journey. So it's down to those who have gone beyond us. And above us. And further than us to come back and hold our hands and take us forward. That is what our teachers do. They, our teachers help us to see the world as they do. That is what the Buddha did. He helped us to see the world as, as he did. Now he didn't change anything outside. When the Buddha attained Buddhahood, they were suffering and there still is suffering. People still suffer, don't you suffer? So he didn't change anything. There were still Rupa, there were still trees and birds and bees and mountains and molehills. They're still there. Nothing's changed. Because Buddhahood is simply mindful awareness. Mindful, but insightfully aware. So this is why, you know, I I want you to see the world as I do. As difficult as it might be, as tough as it might be, you know, if, if, that, if that is how you have to see the world, then my task is to help you to see the world either today or tomorrow. Or in a hundred years from today, you have to see the world as I do. I will no longer see the world as you do. I can't. But I can appreciate. I can see why you see the world as you do. Because I once saw it that way. It's like, you know, when you catch a liar... And you know they're lying, right? You can understand why they're lying, right? You can understand why they're lying. You listen to the lie, but you don't fall for it. Or if you're a magician, <coughs> and you know how a magic trick is performed, you can watch another magician perform the trick, but not fall for it, because you know the logic behind the magic. So whether this is tough or this is easy, this is where we need to go. But it's not so difficult. If it was, I wouldn't be able to understand it. Trust me. But this is a journey that I've taken. Merits help me every step of the way. My teacher helps me every step of the way. And thinking about others before oneself helps me every step of the way. My 
my, in, I, w- I was actually talking about my own teacher, Guru Swami Nuhansi. So the Dhamma is our teacher for all of us, absolutely. The Dhamma was the Buddha's teacher. But I need my teacher to explain things to me, just as I'm doing with you. See, I haven't just come and given you... I've not come and laid out the Tripitaka in front of you, have I? That would be the Dhamma. Because in the Noble Triple Gem you have all three. Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha. Buddha is the destination. Dhamma is the raft that's going to get you there. But Sangha is the oarsman. Who will take you there. Who will show you the path. Who will guide you. you we need that in this asana. We need it. Or if you, if you try to do it without a teacher, that is also possible. But you have to become a Supreme Buddha. Or a silent Buddha. Then you can do it without a teacher. So that is, you have to discover it by yourself. Then you just need merits. But how much merits? I can't imagine how much merits. You need all that. So I don't believe I've got that much merits. But what I do believe is I have enough merits to find myself a good teacher. I have enough merits to be able to understand the Dhamma. And what I'm doing right now is helping you see what I have seen. Therefore, what you give is what you'll get. Help as many people get what they need and you will get what you need. (coughs) Sir. That is the teacher. You you could see it that way as well. Yes, absolutely. So he's a normal noble friend that gives you the dhamma. Yeah, absolutely. Because he he can't he can't be my savior. He can't come and save me. All he can do is give me what saved him. Doesn't it? Yeah. What saved him was the dhamma. So all he can do is introduce me to the dhamma so that I can save myself. After all, you are all going to have to save yourselves. Don't be looking for me to come and save you. I have a ladder which I'll give you. If you're all in, all in a pit, I'll give you a ladder. <coughs> Use it and climb up. <coughs> climb out of the pit that you're in. I can't come down and hold you by your hand and take you up. But I can give you the ladder, that the same ladder that I used to get out of the pit. Think of that as a fitting analogy. So you need to learn how to use the ladder. Hmm? And you need to be careful when you step up the ladder. Each rung, you've got to be careful. Because what if you slip? You'll fall. Sometimes you're fine as you are. <laughs> Whereas if you fall, if you miss a, miss a step and fall, you'll break your neck. That's why you've got to be careful. So you can't be too, too hasty in this. You shouldn't be. <clears throat> lose your bearings and you see a ladder oh my god I need to start climbing don't do that someone asked me the other day do you actually need a teacher do you absolutely need a teacher to attend Iban and my answer is I think so yes because a teacher is someone who's climbed up the ladder at least a few steps beyond I have so they know how exactly to put your step on that on that next step so they'll tell you right foot first a little bit higher, a little bit higher, that's it, that's it, that's it. See, they can only guide me. They can't lift my foot up and put it on the step. I have to do that. But they can guide me. Because they've been there and done that before. That's how. That is what a teacher does. 
So they know the tricks. They know where the pitfalls are. Perhaps sometimes they might have slipped. Maybe they've fallen before us. But now, out of compassion, out of loving kindness, they try to ensure that it doesn't happen to, to, to us. So they guide us. But remember, they can never pick you up and take you out. They can only guide. Hmm? The Buddha says it himself. I can only guide you. I can show you the path. I can give you instructions. But you have to do it yourself. I can't do it on your behalf. The reason you come here every day, ladies and gentlemen, is because you know that I can't do it on your behalf. Otherwise, why would you have to come here? You know that your being here is important for your salvation, don't you? You know that your coming here is important for your salvation, don't you? If I could do it for you, if you stay at home, I'll do it for you. Don't you think if I could, I wouldn't? Hmm? If I go around the city looking for people who need to offer arms so that they can be free from their plight, hmm? so that they can be free from their, from, from their miserable lives, don't you think I would come and do it for you if I could? You stay at home, do, I'll do it for you, don't worry. Hmm? Send me a check by post. <laughs> Nibbana doesn't work like that. I can do your homework for you. But I can't learn math for you. Understand that. If you've got maths to learn, I can't learn it on your behalf, but I can do your homework for you. And you can present it to your teacher and say, Teacher, see, I've done my homework. And the teacher will look at you and go, Oh, nice, you've done all your homework. Brilliant. They'll be very impressed. But have you learned math? No. Can I do that on your behalf? No, you've got to do that on your own. But I can do your homework for you. See, I'm doing your homework for you. I contemplate. I spend time thinking about the Dhamma. I live and breathe the Dhamma. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, every waking moment we contemplate on the Dhamma. Before I come here, I think about now how can I simplify this further. Every day I think to myself, how can I simplify this? When I know Saturday is coming up, I think, last week was a bit heavy. How can I simplify it? How can I give it in even simpler terms? What other examples might I be able to share? These things I think about. And how does I look at your faces and go, no, they didn't get it. Your face says it all. I can read your faces. I can read your eyes. That's because you have enough merits for me to be able to do so. That's why. If you didn't have the merits, I wouldn't be able to do that. You have enough merits for a teacher to be able to look at you and gauge to what degree you've understood something, so that the teacher tries again, and again, and again, and again, and a hundred times until you get it. That's why we always say, engage in as many merits as you possibly can. Because it is your merits that will help you. That is your merits that will guide you to comfort in this life and the afterlife and where there is no life. So I know, I once sometimes you do a sermon, I ask you, was that a bit too heavy? I ask you that because I know. It's like, whoosh, just <laughs> gone over your head. But I say, that's alright, because I, I, I don't want anyone to be, to be bothered about that, because, you know, if you keep coming to the sermons, you know, one day you'll get it. Every day, you know, like, there's a new lesson, isn't there? Even in school, there's a new lesson. So there was one day where you learned, 
Euclidean geometry. Right? So they taught you on day one, it was a new lesson. But on the second day, it wasn't a new lesson. They built up on the first lesson. And on the third day, they built up on, that, on the second lesson, and so on, until eventually you start doing the sums, you start doing some exercises, you, do, you start doing some extra exercises. Huh? Maybe you take a tuition from someone, and eventually you understand, ah, okay, get it now. That will happen to all of you. The penny will drop. Just wait. You've got to be in the right environment. That's the most important thing. I, I'm, I always go on, go on about this. The most important thing is, is the environment. Environment is everything. Do your merits and be in the right place. Magic will start to happen. You don't have to do anything. Because your teacher is doing it for you. Just as much as I don't do anything, my teacher is doing it for me. Guru Swami Nasi always tells us, in this sasana, it is the teacher who does everything. He's so right. Spot on. All I've got to do is be in the teacher's presence. He'll observe me. He'll watch me and know when exactly the right time is to, talk, to say about something. Hmm? That is the compassion that they have in their minds. Just as you do with your children. You know, to, to grow up and to learn the ways of life. What did your child have to do other than be with you? Was it not you who taught your child the right things at the right time? Do this, don't do that. Hmm? When they did something wrong, you caught them and said, No, don't do that again. If you do that, this will happen to you. And you taught them to do the right things. All they had to do was be with you. Not be with you and keep their eyes and ears shut. They had their eyes open, they had kept their ears open, and they said they listened to what you had to say. But if they didn't get it, you said it again. If they didn't get it again, you said it again, and again, and again, until they got it. That's how any teacher does, works. So the same thing goes here. If you be in a place where, because you know, you'll understand more, this more and more as you keep progressing in the Dhamma, ladies and gentlemen, that there is nothing for you to do. Because there is no you to do anything. All that's happening right now, even with, whether you believe it or not, whether you feel you're attaining Nibbana, or that Nibbana is happening to you, whether you accept it or not, what's really happening is, your mind is in the right environment where it's being influenced. With each word I say, you're being influenced. If I took you and sat you in front of a TV, you're being influenced. If I gave you a newspaper and said, read that, you're being influenced. Whether you like it or not, you're being influenced. As a lie said a hundred times becomes a truth. You're being influenced right now. But you have permitted me to influence you by being here. You know I'm not speaking to you against your will. You want to be influenced because you know you're in the wrong. Is there any reason, any other reason why you've come here? Other than knowing that you're wrong? Hmm? If, you know you're, if you knew you were right, would you come? No. You know you're wrong. You know that the way you see the world is wrong. That is why you have come. So you've said, Swami Nuhansa, I see the world in a very wrong way. Please can you help me? Please influence me. Please open my eyes for me. Or help me to open my eyes so that I can start to see the world in the right way. Your presence here has given me the authority to do that. Because no one's forced you to be here. No one's twisting your arm. Yeah, you get a free lunch out of it, but you know that's not why you're here. 
what have the Anagarikas done? They've brought themselves and they've made themselves present here in this environment. Hmm? How do you set a jelly? What does the jelly have to do for that? Besides allowing the environment to change it, <coughs> what does the jelly have to do to set? Nothing. What does the water have to do to boil? Besides allowing energy to seep in, hmm? besides being something that can absorb energy, okay, that's a good, good, good analogy. Besides being a substance that can absorb energy, so when energy is given, the water has to absorb it. If it doesn't absorb it, it's never going to boil. Yeah? Just as, if you're not going to absorb this, nothing's going to happen to you. But you won't be here if you're not willing to absorb, will you? Your presence here is a given that you want to absorb. That is why you bring yourselves here. Either on foot or on four wheels, you get here because you want, you want, you want to absorb this. So in fact, you've put yourself on the stove. Now it's down to the fire to boil you. So let the fire do what the fire has to do and you do what you have to do. So you be here and be prepared to absorb. That is why I say, for open-minded people, if you are narrow-minded, if you are close, if you are shut, no, don't tell me what you have to tell me. I don't agree with any of that. It's nonsense. It's rubbish. It's, you know, I don't believe that. Even before they've heard what I had to say. That's also okay. I mean, there are people who've been like that and they've gone to the Buddha and said, No, Buddha, listen, I have something to tell you. Hear me out. So the Buddha patiently hears him out. And then the Buddha asks, Have you said everything you have to say? Yes, I have. And what is your answer to that? He said, I would speak, if only you were prepared to listen. Are you? Oh, fine. Oh, go on then. And then the Buddha speaks. And then he realizes, that's what he should have done in the first place. Allow the greater man to speak. And him keep shut. But you know, when you have something you want to get off your chest, you're not prepared to let the other man speak. You have to get it off your chest first. right? So, sometimes there will be times where people have something they want to get off their chest, so we just let them get it. Okay, alright. Say, say what you have to say. <clears throat> In my life, there have been plenty of occasions, particularly as a monk, where sometimes people will come to us and they'll start to explain the Dhamma to us. They say, Swami Nasa, I've understood something. Yes, so in the Paticca Samuppada Swaminvansa, right, you know how ignorance leads to Abhisankar, right? So I've figured how it happens. Okay. So if you if you go deep into this Abhisankara Swaminvansa, it's very complicated Swaminvansa, but I've got it. Just listen to me and you'll understand it too. Huh? Alright. Oh. So they'll give you War and peace on that, and then they go, but so, you know, there's just one thing I can't talk out, and it's really bothering me. There's just one thing I, work, I can't work out. How does that Abhisankara then become the Vijnana? Is it the same one, or is it a different one? Is it the last one, or the next one? That's the only problem I have, but the rest of it I've figured out. I'm alright with the rest of it. It's, but this one, it just really bothers me. It really annoys me. 
I have trouble sleeping at night, Swami answered. Then I tell them, Sir, I don't understand all that, but I don't have trouble sleeping at night. <laughs> I don't understand Abhisankara to that level of detail, but I'm alright with that. You seem to have a huge problem about something you understand. I can't think of that as being something worthwhile understanding then. Imagine that. Hmm? The Buddha attained enlightenment and then he said, Oh my God, life is so terrible. I wish I didn't understand that. <laughs> I've got a splitting headache now. <laughs> Damn it, I shouldn't have attained Buddhahood. <laughs> so, but you know what? You've you got to let them get it off their chest. You know, a hungry man is an angry man. Okay, so when a man is hungry, you've got to feed him. Hmm? Once he's had his meal, then you can talk to him about how not to be hungry again. How not to be hungry again. But you can't talk to him about that while he's still hungry. First you've got to feed him. Do it. You've got to feed him. He is not prepared to listen to what you have to say. All he can think of is his hunger. Yes, you know, this is an art. As much as it is a science. What I deliver to you is a science. But there is an art of delivery. That's why sometimes I'll crack a joke with you. Not because I'm a joker. I don't want to crack jokes. I'm here to tell you the absolute truth and nothing else. I'll tell you, you know, be a nice person, be a good person, when I know that there is no such thing. But I'll speak to you nonetheless to try and instill those values, to try and aim for those morals. Because there's a journey that we have to take, ladies and gentlemen. It's a journey. You can't take the bottle from the baby. If the baby needs a milk bottle, let him have the milk bottle. You can't take the dummy out of the baby's mouth because the baby's going to start crying. Yes, now we don't have a dummy in our mouths. But when we were younger, when we were just infants, when we were just babies, we had them. And if they pulled it out at the wrong time, you'd have gone insane. So everyone has a pace at which they progress. And you've got to allow that to happen. That's why when you come here and you want to become an Anagarika, right, or you... Some people say, I want to ordain. I said, prove to me that you want to. We only ordain people when they no longer want to be ordained. Because otherwise, that wanting to be ordained is why they want to ordain. That's, not, that's the wrong reason to ordain. If someone wants wishes to ordain because they want to ordain, that's the wrong reason to ordain. Because what happens after they have ordained? Now there is nothing else they want. They don't want Nibbana. What they wanted was to ordain. Now they've ordained. Now they've got it. Now there is nothing else to look forward to. Then the only thing they say there is to look forward to is what? To disrobe. And then they go back. You know, we tell our, our monks, uh, Anagarikas and so on, you know, if you want to watch a film, tell me. I'll show you a film the day you don't want to see a film. I'll let you listen to music the day you don't want to listen to music. I'll let you go home the day you don't want to go home. 
Because when someone says, I want to go home, that is not the problem they have. It's not them being home that is the problem. It's them wanting to go home that is the problem. And all wanting is based in ignorance and attachment. So as a responsible teacher, my duty is not to give them what they want, it's to give them what they need. When your child cried, Mother, I want to watch telly, I want to eat chocolate, I want pizza, you didn't always give them what they wanted. You gave them what they needed. When they said, can I stay up tonight and watch this, watch that, watch the film, watch the footy, you said, no. Sorry, you can't have that. Go sleep, you have school tomorrow. Because that is not what they wanted, but that is what they needed. See, all they had to do was in the, be in the right environment and be receptive to what the teacher has to say. If you cannot absorb that, then it's going to be tough. Remember Portila? Hmm? And that's from the time of the Buddha. Portila was a monk, he was a very erudite monk. Very learned. Very erudite. But Portila was not receptive to what his teachers had to say. Because he thought he knew it all. He went around, just as the example I gave earlier. Every time he would meet someone, either a bhikkhu, his senior or his junior or his equal, he would, he would meet with them and, and, and share with them what he knew. So you can imagine Portla always going around like that. Less of this and more of that. So when he started to speak, everyone stopped and they just listened, realizing, what a fool. <laughs> Go on. What a fool. Because a wise man, uh, you can't bother a wise man by too much talking. <clears throat> because all he sees is a teacher. He looks at you and he realizes, ah, Sankara. You can't bother a wise man. A fool always has a lot to say. But listen, little to listen to, little to learn. He has a lot to say. Whereas a wise man is not so. A wise man speaks a few words, but in those few words, there's a lot to learn. So he speaks a little, because he only needs to speak a little. Because in those few words are such profoundness. That a, that a foolish man would have to speak volumes to try and get the same meaning, the same essence out. And sometimes even, no matter how hard he would try, he still can't do that. So Portila was someone who would walk around giving instructions and advice to others and preaching the Dhamma. Hmm? Then eventually, until, eventually, he, he met the Buddha. And he went to the Buddha and said, Sir, you should be very proud of me. Hmm? I am an exemplary monk in your Sangha community. I walk around preaching the Dhamma. I have a lot to say and I have a lot of students who listen to me, who come and talk to me. I can share, I can explain the Dhamma in such detail. And not just in this birth, I have done it in many births, sir. At that point you can imagine what the Buddha must have thought, right? Time waster. There's a lovely word for that in Sinhalese. Yes, thank you. 
better you than me. <laughs> Otherwise they'll come and ask me, shall we edit that out of the sermon? <laughs> so imagine that, you know, you go to the Buddha and say, Venerable Sir, in the, pre, in the time of the, your predecessor, I was also such an erudite monk. So I preached the Dhamma to everybody. And also in the, in the time of his predecessor, I also went around preaching the Dhamma. Hmm? So the, you know, he, he's done everything but see the Buddha, right? What a fool. That's when the Buddha said, What a fool of a man you are, Potila. What a fool of a man you are. Is this what a, you have made use from a Buddha? Is this what use you've made from a Buddha? Is this what a Buddha is for? To learn the Dhamma to, and, to st- and to go preaching here, there and everywhere? Is that what a Buddha is for? The very fact that you are telling me that you were there in my pre- predecessor's time and his time and his predecessor's time in, in the lineage of Buddhas, you've always been there preaching the Dhamma. Does that not convince you enough, you fool, that you have not made use of a Buddha? A Buddha is here so that you can stop doing this. But you haven't done that. What a fool you are. That was a shocker for, for Bortila. He was utterly shocked when he heard that. He didn't expect that. He expected praise and honor. He thought the Buddha would bestow him with, with glory. And he thought the Buddha might summon the other monks and, and, and praise this man in front of everyone. Say, you know, Sangha, uh, Bhikkhus, look at this, this, this Bhikkhu, hmm? Potila. See what he does. He's such a service to mankind. That is what he expected. But nothing could be further from the truth. That is not what he got. He got a right kick up his rear. So having realized this, Portla walked away. Head hung low. Realizing that he had gone a step too far. He hadn't done what he had to do. He had seen the Buddha, but he hadn't realized the Buddha. So he walked away. And he was very he was he was he was very destitute because there was no one who was willing to teach him, to guide him, to instruct him, because what had he done all these years? Walked around preaching to other people. Hmm? You can imagine when Port, when Portler used to be a teacher, you can imagine his his style, right? Because here a teacher is someone who is always a good student. If you are not a good student, never wear the crown of a teacher. You will always go wrong. These are great words. Not because I said so. Because this is the truth. Don't be a teacher if you are not prepared to be a student. Portler was not prepared to be a student. He was just a teacher. He wanted to preach to everybody. He wanted to be a teacher to everybody. So when it came the time that he, it was time for him to be a student, no one was willing to teach him. Because they thought, oh God, how can we do that? You are, you know, you are, you are, you are the teacher. How can we preach to you? How can I teach you? How can I guide you or instruct you? I've been taking your uh, advice and instruction so humbly at your feet and how can I be your teacher now? So Portal had a tough time finding a teacher. 
Until eventually he was fortunate enough his merits brought him to an arahant, but only this tall. He was a young monk, age seven, but he was an arahant. So Portler, because of course this monk didn't know about Portler, might have heard of him, but he hadn't been his teacher, or he hadn't been his student. So then he asked, Swami Nohansa, please can you be my teacher? I've, I've gone round the block, that all I did was go and preach to others, and I never got the essence of the Buddha's teaching. I was not a good student, so today I struggle to find a good teacher. Please would you come to my rescue? Please can you help me? And so he said, yes, if you will do exactly as I ask you to. If you do exactly as I ask you to, I will. So then he gave him a test <coughs> to check whether he was willing to do exactly as he was asked. There was a pool of mud, muddy water, and it had an incline. So the further you walked in, the deeper it got. And so he said, right, now get into that mud and start walking. Every step he took, he walked further and further and the water level would rise and up until his, up, 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 to his, up to his nostrils. And even at that point he turned around and said he was waiting for his next instruction. So right here, just under his nostrils. So he's waiting for the next instruction and the, and the, the, young, the young monk, the arahant says, Continue. So this is an important juncture for Portla. This is where he changed. He thought to himself, you know, this little monk, what does he know? I know so much. Hmm? I know so much about the world. I'm such an experienced person. I'm a, I'm a very learned and erudite monk. Now this young monk, I don't know whether he knows what he's asking me to do. He's asking me to walk into the walk further into the water. The next step I, I take is going to suffocate me. I'm going to die. So he was considering, what should I do now? And then he thought, you know what? All these years, I always did what I thought was right. That is where it all went wrong for me. If it is death that has to come my way, matters not. I will do as my teacher tells me to. Because if I have accepted him as my teacher then I will do whatever he says. So he said, as you wish, sir. And it, as he took his, lifted his foot up to make that, take that next step, that Swami Nasi said, enough. Turn around. Come back to me. It was a test to check whether he was ready to change. Whether he was willing to pay with his life to have a teacher guide him. This is why I think the world of my teacher. And you know that. But you have to be prepared to be a student. Because when the student is ready, that's when the teacher appears. So Portla turned around and he walked back. And then the Swami Nuhansa was prepared to give him instruction. He said, now go wash yourself. 
come back and I will teach you how to become a proper Arahant. And so he did. And soon enough, he was able to achieve that sainthood. See, you just have to be in the right environment and have the right attitude. See, the teacher who was that young monk, seven years of age, he did everything. But he couldn't have done anything if Portola didn't have the right attitude. That's why I say Nibbana is an attitude, ladies and gentlemen. It's the willingness to change. Your willingness to change is what will help you change. It's what will enable you to receive the right instruction at the right time for you to change. That change is not going to happen in 10 years time. That change will happen now. In this moment it has to change. These are micro-changes. Micro-changes. You don't even notice them. But by the end of this sermon you will have changed. A little bit. So don't think that your Nibbana is going to happen in 10 years time, 20 years time. It's happening now. Have you not done what is needed to do? Have you not brought yourselves into the right environment? You have. Isn't there a teacher here to help you? Well, with those two components, when they, when they occur at the, right, at, at the same time, right? you've got everything that needs for change to happen. So change is happening right now. And you don't even know it. Because these don't have to be dramatic and drastic changes. They'll be very micro changes, but consistently done over time, and it's compounded time and time and time again. Big things don't happen overnight. They happen one small change at a time. One small change. You know, they say an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Hmm? Not, a, not a hundred apples on one day. That would make you ill. You'd have to take you to the doctor. But an apple a day, only one apple a day. One small change at a time. Not big changes. So don't aim for big changes in life. Have a big goal. Think big, but start small. Make small incremental changes. These are what behaviors are. These are what habits are. More so than behaviors. These are what habits are. Habits enable you to make small incremental changes every single day. How does one become unhealthy? Overnight? A bad behavior repeated over time. When it becomes a habit. When we say an apple a day, some people hear a Snickers bar a day. Hmm? What happens then? If you, if, you, if you put yourself on that diet, pretty soon, you'll be very unhealthy. And then to become healthy, what must you do? Stop the bad habits. Start the good habits. You can't go and exercise yourself to fitness on one day. It happens, has to happen incrementally. One small step at a time. So it's not like go and spend 10 hours at the gym. I'm talking about something unrelated to Nibbana, but you, I want you to understand the principle here. Half an hour a day. That's all. Not 10 hours on one day. Half an hour a day. 15 minutes a day. How much meditation have I asked you to do? 15 minutes a day. Not three hours, not two hours, not even an hour, not even half an hour. I said 15 minutes a day. Just a small bit, 
but done every day consistently that is what brings us results all of this and the dhamma that i preached to you the the, the the practice that i do all of this is just small changes every day all i've done is keep myself in the right environment at my teacher's feet and engage in merits because in this environment everything you do is meritorious how can you not do merits while you are here right even if you even if you fill a glass of water and offer it to someone again you you earned merits if you sweep the room you earned merits if you lay the chairs out so people can come and sit you earned merits if you put the fans on you earned merits what if you switch off the fans at the end of the sermon you still earned merits when you set the camera up you earned merits when you wrap it all up pack it all back up you still earned merits when you write on the board you earn merits what about when you raise the board after the sermon is done you still earn merits when you offer the flowers to the buddha you earn merits how about when the flowers are withered away and they come in here tomorrow hmm, and it's rotting there and you take it and throw it out no merits of course because it's not in the action it's in the intention that's a merits is not hard to do is easy to do but it's all in the intention so you need to earn those merits it is those merits that will propel you in your on your path on on nibbana to nibbana so earn those merits keep on keep on earning those merits find you keep yourself in the right environment you know if the environment was not so important why would the buddha create the sasana hmm? why would you create uh, the the bhikkhu sasana if the environment was not so important otherwise you could have just gone from town to town preaching the dhamma right and said okay people stay at home and attend nibbana why did he create the sasana why did he create the community of the sangha because environment is everything so sometimes people come and ask me swami nanda why do i have to be here as an anagarika can i not go home and do it mm. I say you're asking the wrong man <laughs> because if you're not prepared for the answer don't ask the question I don't believe it's possible because they have the wrong attitude I've told you it's not your layness that delays you on your path to nibbana it's your lay attitude if you're in your lay lives because you can't choose the other alternative because it's impossible there are too many obstacles there age can be an obstacle duties obligations responsibilities they can be obstacles your ailing parents could be an obstacle right these can be obstacles if those obstacles you can't overcome then but you, if you if if you were able to you would that is not a lay attitude that is a monk's attitude but you're still a lay person that's all right you can attend nibbana no problem but imagine someone who can make that change who can come here who can be here who can go on to practice the path of an anagarika and go on to become a swami nuhansa and then fulfill that that journey to their destination who can do that and then they still think but can't i do it at home also no not because they're going back to a lay life but because they're going back to a lay attitude with that attitude <laughs> not nibbana you can't get anywhere that's the thing so environment is everything 
right? So I will keep trying, you know, hundred, if not a thousand, if not a million ways to try and explain all this to you. And it's not just something that I will do. That is the duty of the Mahasangha. Our, our job is that, right? What is, this, is, this, is, this is our life livelihood. Practice the Dhamma and help others practice the Dhamma. What else do we have to do? You don't have to go and do a job or anything like that. You are there to look after all that for us. So what you expect in return is, Swami Nuhan, so while you practice, please can you also share with us what you practice? Can you inspire us? Can you motivate us? Can you help us build the right behaviors, the right habits, so that we can also go on that path as you have done? Yes, that is, that is the connection that we have. That is the mutual understanding that we have, isn't it? Do you come here for anything else? In fact, would I give you anything else if you asked? <laughs> All I have is the Dhamma, because I don't have anything else to give you. I can give you the Dhamma, I can teach you how I practice it, and then it's down to you to do the same. Because nothing else is worth doing, that's why. Nothing else is worth doing. Nati me saranangan Buddho, Dhammo, Sangho, me saranangvara. There is no other refuge. So nothing else is worth doing. You know that now. That's why you bring yourselves here. I know it sounds a bit like I'm teaching you to suck eggs here, but it is the truth and you know that. You know that there is nothing else worth doing. That is why if you could, you would spend the whole week here, but you can't. That's why you only come here on a, on a Monday or a whenever, Sunday, Saturday. Because there's nothing else worth doing. And for those of you who can make that jump, you do that. I mean, that's a huge victory in your life. And whenever you obstacles come your way, we try and come up with new and innovative ways of coming up with new programs so that you can fit in somehow. So now we have what? Sila Sravika. Hmm? When you said, but Swami Nuhansa, we are too old, how can we come and join your ranks? I have duties, responsibilities, I have to go back home to feed the children, to wash the dog. Hmm? Whatever you have to do when you head back home. Huh? I have to still do those things. I have my old mother, you know, she needs me, there's no one else to look after her. What can I do so I can't really come and become an Anagarika? Right, fine. Let's let's do a program for that. So now you have Sila Shavika. See when we see there is a need for it, we will we will step up and, and make sure that you have the environment. Because environment is everything. So we, we create that environment wherever we can. We can. It's down to you to make use of it. Does that make sense? That bit made sense, right? Don't know about this part, but that bit made sense. Maybe that I should have said first. Huh? Did this make sense? What I try to explain to you here, ladies and gentlemen, is that each thing is a discrete event. You see connections between these things because, in your mind, you try to perceive a connection. Because you want to take all of this as one, one package, that's why. None of this is a one package. These are all elementary units. Nothing is one. Nothing can be taken as one package. Then you'll ask me, what do you mean by discrete then? Well, these are all discrete elements that combine together to give you the impression 
to manifest as one entity, but that is only in a conventional sense. Even if you were to take one of these, couldn't you still expand this? Right? Say, take the cap off. What should I do to take the cap off? One thing, or is it a series of things? A series. See? Hold it in this, in this way. Right? Grip the cap. Pull with X amount of force in this direction and keep tugging on it until it comes off. Now, could you not take another one of those steps and still keep on expanding it? You could. Right now, then you can even start start talking about the chemistry within the body that enables it to happen, the, the mechanism that enables it to happen. You can start talking about the neurons, the motor neurons that make it happen. You can go to you know the nth degree. You can keep on going. But the further you go, the more you realize it's just a series of cause and effect. There was not one thing that happened. There was just a series of causes and effects. But for, but for convenience, again, we package it up into one activity and we call it taking the cap off. See? That's packaged. In fact, this would probably be a million things done in quick succession and you say, that's taking the cap off. But that was not one thing. A hundred things, a thousand things. If you looked at every cell in the body that had to work in unison for that to happen, if you, if you studied all the neurons that, to had, that had to fire at exactly the right time, if you, if you went into the cells and studied the mitochondria that had to re- produce enough energy to do that at just the right time, all that, these are all a series of events, all caused, cause and effect driven. That's all there is. So I can never be late and I can never be early and I can never be on time. Because there's no such thing. Except in your make-believe world, you perceive time. Because when you want to talk about something, you have to tell it in a story form. Otherwise life doesn't make sense to you, unless you tell it in a story. When I was young, I was just a little girl. And then I had a little brother with whom I loved to play. And then we grew up and then he went to boarding school and I stayed at home. You don't go on about your story. And then uh, ten years later we met again and it was such a nice reunion. Story. None of those things happened. It's just a story that you like to tell yourself. All that happened were discrete events. But each of those discrete events, if you wanted, you could zoom in further and keep going, keep going, keep going until... No, there is no until. You can keep on going. That is the nature of anicca. Everything is cause and effect driven. But the point is not to keep on going until you find the atom, the subatomic particle. That is not the point. It's not that the whole point of this is not to find that, you know, that indivisible particle that makes up all this. It's not the point. But scientists believe that's the point of doing it. They'll keep on, you know, microscoping and femtoscoping and atoscoping until they keep on and find, you know, the picoscoping (laughs) until they find that, that indivisible particle. They'll say it's, you know, maybe a, a quark, a quantity of energy. They'll keep trying to d- divide it further. I'm saying that's not the point of this. You don't need to find what something is made of. You just need to know that it's made of something. Does that make sense to you? You don't need to understand what something's made of. 
That's what science tries to do. What the Buddha teaches is, don't worry about what it's made of. Just realize that it's made of something. Because when you know it's made of something, you know it's not one unit. It's just a manifestation of lots of causes coming together. The energies that flow, that keep it in, in, in that form. When we give that form a name, form has a name. Namarupa. Form has a name. Because we need it for convention, we need it for conversation, we need it for survival. But that's all it is. Does that make sense? Hmm? Does it? Hopefully it does. I'll give you one other <coughs> piece of advice. If things don't make sense, or if you feel that, gosh, this is just getting a bit too much, like I'm, 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 I, I don't know whether I'll ever attain Nibbana. Please have your trust in me. That's all I can ask you. Because that I can only ask you. I can't prove you to trust me. You know, trust is something that you, you're going to have to have. Yes. So I ask you, please trust me that you will eventually understand it because there is no you to understand it. So you are not someone who cannot understand or who can understand. Understanding happens when the right causes are there. It is not something that you have to do. There is no doer here, it's just the done. No doers. When the right conditions will come together, understanding will happen, comprehension will happen. Just let it happen whenever it happens. Don't worry about it. Because if you start fretting about it, oh, I haven't understood it yet. Oh, I haven't understood it yet. Oh, when will I understand it? You know, you're, now you are making a problem out of another problem. Now you have two problems. Don't do that to yourself. If you haven't understood a word of what I have said today, just walk out of this room realizing, that's all right. That's okay. I tell you, trust me, it's alright that you haven't understood. It's okay. What if you have understood? Hmm? You walk out proud? I've understood, unlike the rest of you. Huh? That's also silliness. Because if you feel that you have understood it, then you actually haven't understood anything. If you feel that you haven't understood it, that's still okay because it's not you who has not understood it. Huh? So, don't get on your high horse thinking that you have understood it and nobody else has. So, it's not, it's not for us to be snobbish about or, you know, uh, you don't need to be like that. And you don't need to eat humble pie either. Oh, I can't understand this. I haven't understood this. When will I ever understand this? Don't beat yourself up. And there's no reason to pat yourself on the shoulder either. Just let it be. Understanding or not understanding, let it be. Just let it be. Let it be. You should be okay with both understanding and not understanding. That is Nibbana. You should be okay with hunger and with a full stomach. You should be okay with both. That's not to say let's go hungry. We eat, but we are okay with either, mentally. Okay with either. If you break your leg, ladies and gentlemen, be okay with that. But still go to the doctor. 
get treatment, but be okay with a broken leg mentally. Physically, get it fixed. Mentally, be alright with that. Easier said than done, I know. But that is why you have to keep yourself in this environment. So whereby I can teach you how to be okay with that. How to be okay with anything. How to be okay with life and to be okay with death. And Arahant doesn't want to live, he doesn't want to die either. That's an Arahant. He doesn't say, please kill me. And he doesn't say, please can I live a bit longer? He's okay with either. And Arahant is okay with hell, he's okay with heaven. He's okay with anything. Mentally, he's okay with anything. That is Arahanthood. Why? Because it's just a chitta that has, whose job it is to identify, to recognize and to perceive what's happening right now. Not to set expectations. Not to like things or dislike things. That is not an Arahant mind. An Arahant mind is simply one that identifies and recognizes what's going on in the present moment. It's just something that mindfully is aware of the Dhamma. The Dhamma being what it bears. That's it. Enough for a day? Ah, it's time. <laughs> let's, let's, let's refuel ourselves up. Hmm? Because you have another afternoon. It's worth of Dhamma to listen to. <clears throat> but be okay, okay? Just be okay. Be okay with being okay as well. Now, you know, on occasions I'll tell you, be heedful. You can't be like this. Huh? You have to be serious about Nibbana. <laughs> what are you doing? Don't be coming here with your excuses. I had my children to look after. I had the bills to pay. I had my husband to do this, do that, do that, or the other. Right? I'll tell you that as well. I'll tell you, make sure you bring yourselves here. But all I'm saying is just bring yourselves here. Keep yourself in this environment. You know, Keep yourself alert. Keep yourself vigilant. Keep yourself awake. And just let the magic happen. It will happen. Trust me, it will happen. As it has happened to me. I didn't do anything to attain Nibbana, trust me. It just happened. Nibbana is not something you can go and find. Nibbana comes looking for you. That's how it happens. It's not something you go find. It comes looking for you. When you are ready for it. It's like the wind. You know, the wind blows when there's an area of low pressure. Yeah? So all you have to do is be prepared to absorb allow it to come to you and the wind will come if you are high pressured if you are full of high pressure then it won't come to you so don't be like oh about nibbana just be okay be okay just 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 relax take take a chill pill <laughs> just be all right just be easy do what you have to do, you know, help other people. Abstain from the unmeritorious deeds and do as many meritorious deeds as possible. Don't feel that, you know, it's Nibbana is something you have to go get. Just allow Nibbana to come to you. That's what you got to do. Alright? Right, fine. Now let lunch come to us. <laughs> Before that, let us take a moment to transfer all the merits that you have all gained 
by listening to the Dhamma and trying to understand the Dhamma for yourself and for the benefit of others as well. Hmm? And let us transfer these merits to all those who are deserving of it so that they, as we do ourselves, can progress on this path to Nibbana. Alright, so let us take a moment then to transfer the maze that we have all acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the Noble Triple Gem and listening to the Dhamma and engaging in various meritorious deeds today. First and foremost, let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching and with immense gratitude let us transfer these merits to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasikas and upasikas who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down in the form of the Tripitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand and comprehend the Dhamma. Let us also transfer the merits we have acquired to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters who have dedicated their lives to the Noble Path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that among them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us also transfer these merits to my teacher, Guru Swami Nuhanse, as well as all the teachers resident at the monastery and the Anagarika and Anagarika communities attached to the monastery. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by transliterating these talks, sharing them out with others or inviting others to join them, and may by the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer the merits we have acquired to our devotees, friends of the monastery, who for the sake of merits to help them attain Nibbana, continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who have contributed to the construction of the monastery, to those who provide the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes and medicines, as well as those of you who have passed on their know-how and continue to extend their well wishes. May by the power of these merits they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to our mothers, fathers, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, Grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews, nieces, our elders and acquaintances, our friends and employers and our employees, and to all those who have helped us, supported us and assisted us in any way, shape or form possible to them. By the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer the merits to the Brahmas and the Devas and the spirits and the demons, primarily the Sakadeva as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect and fulfill the Sambuddha Sasana. Let us transfer merits to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. And may by the power of these merits they abstain, I beg your pardon, they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to our ancestors who have predeceased us and to all those who have been families, friends and acquaintances in this infinitely long journey of sansara, those who have helped us, supported us and assisted us in any way, shape or form possible to them. Let us also transfer these merits to the members of the armed forces as well as the police force who have sacrificed their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nation. May all those who have lost their lives in the war be their friend of or rejoice in the merits that we have acquired today. Let us also transfer these merits to all those who lost their lives in natural calamities such as the tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides, pandemics, forest fires, blizzards and so on. 
reminding ourselves that among them will be those who have been friends and family to us in this long journey of sansara. Let us take a moment to transfer these merits to them, and may by the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, may they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Finally, let us all take a moment to resolve that may, by the power and blessings of all the maids we have all acquired today, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of arahants on this blessed land. And finally, may, by the power of all the maids we have acquired throughout the day, you and I and everyone who's helped make this program a success, become a Narahat Nuhanse or a Narahat Terani Nuhanse in this very life itself and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. May the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all. The members of the Mahasangha will now transfer their blessings to all of you.